How's everybody doing this glorious, glorious Saturday? Can you believe it's Saturday? What a wonderful day. I just love Saturday. It's like it's like the, the prequel to the Lord's Day. I mean, read in the liturgy of the church when it comes to the prayers for Saturday. Uh, it's, it, it clearly has that anticipated sort of feeling to it, like we're almost there to, to our Lord's resurrection. That we're just kind of trying to irk through the week and get there. It's just... I love Saturdays. Saturdays, favorite day of the week by far. Well, but besides the Lord's Day, second favorite day of the week is Saturday because of how amazing Saturday is. You just got done your Friday penance. You're going into your your Sunday um, celebrations. It's it's just like the link that binds together penance and joy. Saturday, what a wonderful day. Okay, so. This is a Saturday afternoon q and I think I'm going to keep this up just doing, you know, it, there, there's a lot of people who are from different parts of the world that uh, that listen to the show. Uh, and I see new people every time I do a, a morning and a midday show because they can't make it to the, the, the weekday evening shows. So remember, like always, uh, YouTube members uh, get precedence. They are first class and... They get all their questions answered, no questions asked. And uh, also Super Chats, I will answer them too. And then the rest of them, it's it's a uh, it's up in the air whether I will answer them. But oop, do not leave sight. Open new tab. But before we begin, as always, let us petition our Lord for the graces requisites. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cry come unto thee. Let us pray. Ineffable creator, who out of the treasures of thy wisdom has appointed three hierarchies of angels, and set them in admirable order high above the heavens, and has disposed the diverse portions of the universe in such marvelous array. Thou who art called the true source of light and supereminent principle of wisdom, be pleased to cast a beam of thy radiance upon the darkness of my mind, and dispel from me the double darkness of sin and ignorance in which I have been born. Thou who makest eloquent the tongues of little children, fashion my words and pour upon my lips the grace of thy benediction. Grant me penetration to understand, capacity to retain, method and facility in study, subtlety in interpretation, and abundant grace of expression. Order the beginning, direct the progress, and perfect the achievement of my work. Thou art true God and true man, and liveth and reigneth forever and ever. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. Father Gary Goulagrange, pray for us. Okay, let us get right into it. Okay, good. So I see one from one of my glorious and admirable um, YouTube members. What is the view of the monarchy of the father in Catholic theology? That is a wonderful question because oftentimes people will, oops, moving back my mic, it's a little, a little close to me. 
oftentimes the way that people will view Trinitarian theology is on the one hand, you have the Easterners. They believe in, uh, well, they deny the filioque. They believe in monarchy of the father. And on the other hand, you have the uh, stupid, dumb Latins, or if you're uh, if you're a Latin, the based and true Latins who affirm the filioque and they deny the monarchy of the father. Well, this isn't exactly correct because it all depends on how we are defining uh, monarchy. So by the monarchy, the father, uh, I will define it as the sole original and principal cause of the Trinity. And that is, well, or principle of the Trinity, depending on whether you're using it in the Latin or the Greek sense. So when it comes to the, the father as principle of the Trinity, that is completely true. He is the principle of the Trinity. Now, the son, when it comes to his causality and the spiration of the spirit, he is what's called a principled principle or principle from principle, or a, uh, I guess we could think of it like a secondary uh, principle uh, or instrumental principle. But the father still is the sole unprincipled principle of the entirety of the Trinity when it comes to the generation of the son and the spiration of the spirit. So that's a good question. And I see a super chat down there, so I will I will jump down there. Trent Horn calls oneness Pentecostals quasi-Christian. Do you agree with this statement, or is he going too easy on them? I'm a former Pentecostal. Okay, that is a good question. Now, for, for some former Protestants, uh, and, and I myself kind of had to get out of this mindset, but for some former Protestants, this language of uh, Christian and former and quasi-Christian and non-Christian, uh, when, when it comes to the, the wide range of those who uh, profess the name of Christ, can be a bit confusing. Because normally what Protestants will do, uh, at least the ones who, uh, who are generally confessionals, they'll say, okay, if you affirm the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, some of them, you are... Broadly speaking, Christian. We we'll give you that title. Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, uh, they're they're Christians. Um, your Baptists down the street, they're Christians. Your Presbyterians, your Lutherans, they're they're all Christians. Now, when it comes to Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, since they deny the creeds, they are non-Christians. Now, it's a bit more odd when it comes to how Catholics will define Christians. Because we have a very solidly and a very solidly um, defined system of beliefs or uh, doctrines, uh, articles to assent to uh, when it comes to the Catholic Church. It can be found in the uh, first the Apostles' Creed all the way up to the credo of the people of God uh, from Pope St. John Paul VI. So all of those creeds, we can see the uh, solemnly defined uh, dogmas of the faith that we have to assent to with the ascent of faith as Catholics. That makes somebody a Catholic. Now, there can be certain heretics, and a heretic is somebody that just denies one of the dogmas of the faith. So it could be Eastern Orthodox, everything from Eastern Orthodox, which very close, all the way to, we might think of like Mormons, very, very far, or even, even Muslims. Muslims would technically be considered a Christian heresy. Now, would that uh, make... Would that make uh, a Muslim a, a, a quasi-Christian or a Christian? No, uh, that, that's, that, that's not 
an appropriate term that anybody's ever um, really uh, given to them, unless it's in the context of a Christian heresy. So how, how are we to define, uh, generally speaking, what it means to be Christian as a Catholic? And I would posit that the most helpful um, notes, the notes of the essence of Christian, uh, and, and all note means is something which is uh, essentially uh, predicated of a certain thing in order to denote uh, its species. So, so when it comes to the note of Christian, uh, nominally speaking, uh, among Catholics, it's really going to be somebody who affirms the Messiahship of our Lord. So that, that I guess, could include Oneness Pentecostals and such. But it's really difficult for people with Protestant backgrounds because, um, because the way in which Protestants usually would think of it, um, at least from the circles that I ran in, was, would be in a creedal sense, where when it comes to uh, ranking heretics, whether they're in the Christian box or outside the Christian box, uh, Catholics uh, have a little bit uh, more leg room uh, when it comes to how we're defining uh, Christian, because it doesn't say really say anything um, salvifically or, uh, any, and, or anything like that. It's really just um, more of a nominal term in which we're going to we're going to put on uh, somebody who's a non-Catholic, but still. Um, September 10th, baby. Guess what tomorrow is? September 11th. Okay. So now I'll go back and thank you for the super chat, by the way. Appreciate it. And I will... Okay, this is a good question. So, um, <clears throat> what is the debate between intellectualism and voluntarism in reference to God either being intellect or will primarily any resources? Thank you and congrats. I really think uh, a lot of, and, and I have worked over this with, with Gideon um, quite a bit, but I think a lot of... Uh, this debate over intellectualism and voluntarism, uh, people do not consider um, the sense of the words in which they speak in. And a lot of times it can be um, ba basically a war over words more than anything. I'm trying to, okay, I'm trying to find, I remember reality talks about this. Um, Okay. Let me look. Okay. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this uh, has to do with um, mere wars of words. But if you want me, if you want a recommendation about something to read on the divine intellect and the divine will, uh, and at least how the will of God works, um, Father Gary Goulagrange, his reality, a Thomistic synthesis, God's will and God's love. Very, very, very helpful. Um, sovereign freedom of the will, the causality of God's will. Uh, it's really, really good stuff. But even with, um, <clears throat> even with St. Thomas, you know, even with, um, Gary Goulagrange, he is very, uh, stringent when it comes to pointing out the differences of the various schools of thought between Scotism and Suarezianism and, uh, and so on. But Gary Goulagrange doesn't make a big deal about this issue. So 
I, I, I'm not really gonna, I, I don't really make a big deal about this issue. I, I, I think it, a lot of times it is a, uh, it's a non-issue. But I, th I think if we properly define our terms, then um, a lot of the debate is gonna is gonna fall away. Okay, so <clears throat> once I finish Father Charles Copin's book on logic and metaphysics, what should I read next? Okay, wonderful, wonderful question. So there's actually one of two things in which you could do. So I'm gonna pull up my my website real quick. Now the first thing, and I'll explain it while I pull it up. But the first thing you can do is you can just keep keep on reading when it comes to a a little bit more complicated manual. Now that you have now they have you your uh, your sea legs. So a good option for this, if you go to my philosophy manuals, I have a few of Brother Louis, his elementary course of Christian philosophy, Blessed Pope Pius the Ninth's favorite. I've done the I've done the Kindle uh, version for this, obviously. I want to recommend that one. And then also the Manual of Modern Scholastic Philosophy by Mercier. Um, this doesn't really have a good um, typeset version. I mean, there's the uh, the uh, Ediciones. Um, I can't remember what the second word of it is. Uh, one, uh, but that one is like insanely overpriced. It's like, I think it's like $70 a volume. Like it's absolute robbery. So uh, that's that would be a... A good option. I still think uh, Grenier, while Grenier is certainly uh, the best, I, I do think it's like a little bit too complicated for for most people. So yeah, uh, when it comes to Brother Louis, he's a really good choice, or Mercier, he's a good choice. Now, second thing that uh, I think should definitely be considered uh, in your in your growth in philosophy is reading Aristotle. And uh, getting into the, the commentary tradition, because what's really amazing uh, about and I was emailing, uh, I was emailing back and forth um, with someone uh, on, on this issue of, of the manuals. What's really great about the manuals, and I'm sure you've you've kind of you kind of got this by reading uh, Father Copens, is that it really is able to jumpstart you. You're really able to get a very broad view of the divisions and various distinctions that are found in the entire system. You're really able to imbibe a certain, uh, and I hate this word, but worldview, uh, philosophy view, I guess you could say, uh, in a framework. There you go, framework in order to, to work in. And uh, once you've gotten that framework to work in, you shouldn't stop there because uh, really what the, what the manuals are going to do is they're going to teach you uh, the contents of philosophy. But from now, what you should really do is kind of build up your uh, uh, philosophical power, your kind of the habit of being a philosopher and of doing philosophy. So um, once you've once you've sort of uh, gotten the, the framework, uh, when it comes to learning the habit of being a philosopher, uh, there's nothing better than the uh, the, the classical loci, um, the, the the what's called locus classicus or classical text, uh, which is going to be Aristotle's works, and then especially uh, Saint Thomas's commentary on Aristotle's works. Uh, so it, you're you're going to find that it's it it becomes a lot easier to to read those sort of texts now that you have this framework already in your mind. And now, and then when you read the classical text, you're really able to work through a lot of the logic uh, that's present there. So those, those are my two recommendations. 
take take the first recommend. I mean, if you if you do want to definitely work on this more long term, do read an intermediate manual. Um, now that you've read a basic one, um, and then uh, after that, or if you just want to jump into reading primary text now, then go for it. Uh, but yeah, uh, either of those two options would definitely really work. Okay. Uh, do you have any tips? And uh, thank you for being my YouTube member, King. Do you have any tips on studying philosophy slash theology? I often feel like I jump from topic to topic too much and don't have a good process. That is a, uh, a great question. So my, my normal practice is that I'm a, I'm a big fan of system. So you have to have a sort of plan for how to be systematic. Uh, really, when it comes to, while, while it's certainly needed sometimes in your intellectual life, and I felt this myself, uh, and I do this myself uh, oftentimes, you, there's, there's always the, the temptation to just feel like, okay, I want to study the papacy now. I want to study the filioque now. I want to study this. I want to study that. And you get into these little tiny issues that you're, that you're reading about but you don't have context. So for example, uh, if, if you, if somebody comes at, uh, an objector who's objecting about the filioque, somebody's coming at them and, uh, and trying to give all these arguments and such, and you're, you're defending the filioque. If you have a very broad view of the entirety of scholastic philosophy and theology, then what, what's going to happen is you study the issue you already kind of know uh, where where to look because you've read certain areas. So you're going to be able to get the manual sort of short uh, kind of readings. And then from that, from that foundation you have, you're like, okay, I'm going to study uh, these, these longer uh, monographs about it, these articles uh, specifically uh, about this certain issue. And having context, you're going to uh, be the wise man. And the wise man is, is known for his uh, knowledge of causes. So, you know, you know, the foundation of things, you know, uh, you know, the conclusions of things, you know, the way in which the logic works, because, you know, the various connections from the entirety of theology. So that's why um, I, I do not recommend uh, this sort of topic by topic uh, kind of way of doing things, but rather you should make sure you have a sort of systematic uh, foundation, which to work off of, because you can do the topic by topic. But the topic by topic is going to it is in order to be effective, in order to be uh, somebody with theological wisdom and true theological power, you're going to need to to have um, a foundation uh, for that in scholastic uh, philosophy and theology, which is found in um, found in certain manuals that are really going to be able to to um, to uh, get you going. And now uh, how that looks practically um, in the life of in the life of a, of a student of theology, that's going to, uh, depending on your skill level, uh, I would definitely recommend, uh, you, you don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't, don't pull up the, the, uh, the eight volume Sacred Theologiae Summa, which, which does some very intense, uh, sort of, um, scholastic work. You're, you're going to be lost. Don't try to pick up the Summa Theologiae and read the whole thing, which obviously everybody knows the Summa, uh, is is a very um, difficult uh, text, but what what you ought to do is get get those sort of basic um, basic skills in philosophy and theology uh, down, 
and uh, work work branch off uh, from that when it comes to uh, studying individual topics is you're going to kind of have that uh, systematic view of everything. Thank you for the super chat. Oh, Dwight Schrute is currently watching. Impressive. Very nice. Wait. Impressive. Very nice. So, uh, God save the king, boys. Let's pray for his conversion. So true. I hope he disbands the Church of England. Okay. Okay, good question. Why did the church uh, used to burn heretics instead of stoning them, since God usually commands stoning in the Old Testament? That is a really good question. So um, I don't, I don't want to be an, an apologist for burning heretics. If you, if you want to uh, get some of the background for some of the logic that I'm going to be um, applying in this, uh, my article uh, between laxism and rigorism, which is on my website, uh, if you want to check that out. So when it comes to prudentially uh, applying, and I'm, I'm going to get to exactly your question, but I feel like I, I need to, I need to explain myself before I'm like, woo, yeah, burning heretics. Um, but when it comes to the way in which law is applied in certain circumstances, it has to be something which is prudential, something which uh, makes sure that in suppressing evil, it doesn't bring about greater evils. That's why uh, we can, we can on the one hand say like, yeah, theoretically, um, that's not something which is entirely, wasn't something uh, for our ancestors that was entirely wrong to do. Um, so when um, Exerge Domine uh, condemns Luther for saying burning of heretics is against the will of the spirit, Exerge Domine is, is right. It's not against uh, the will of the spirit. Now, does that mean in 21st century America, we should apply that? Well, no, because that would bring about certain greater evils and it would do more harm than it does good. Although it's not something which is per se evil, so now that I've now that I've uh, prefaced it with that with that distinction, um, when it comes to the reason that the church has chosen to burn heretics, uh, the reason is to uh, signify that it is um, it is a sort of precursor of eternal hellfire. That's that's why. Okay, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. I forgot. Oh, man. Good thing. Good thing you guys reminded me. Actually, none of you reminded me. So I needed my lovely wife made sure she reminded me of this. As a, as a brief aside, we're kind of running short on questions. This is like a, a Q&A first. Okay. I usually get like a thousand questions. Okay. Remember, I just came out with... Uh, Bodily assumption by, oh, look, bro. Bodily assumption of Mary, number one new release in Mariology. Bro, this is actually kind of cool. Look at that. Number one new release in Mariology. There you go. Make sure you uh, you get yourself a copy. It's only $2.99. Or if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can get it for free. Make sure you give it that five-star review. Keep us number one uh, in Mariology. And then... Uh, when it comes to this, um, this is also a number one new release in 30-minute politics and social sciences short reads, which I'm sure is a very uh, is a very um, competitive area, you know. But uh, look, look at this absolutely baller review. 
I hope this uh, convinces you to buy it. Are you an antsy 14-year-old looking for reasons to be against the machine but tired of the boring old line of communism? This book is for you. You now can have intelligent complaints about modern industrial capitalism with which to burden your family at dinner time, while simultaneously having the capacity to inflict unlimited psychological damage on terminally online tankies and burning bros. So there you go. So make sure you uh, pick up a copy of that, also uh, $2.99. So just, uh, just a quick reminder. Okay, so... Why did the church uh, used to burn heretics? Oh, wait, no, I just I just answered that. Okay, uh, when James says faith without works is dead, what he really means is faith without charity is dead, right? Yes, yes, that is that is the uh, the interpretation that uh, St. Thomas is going to take. Let me see. Uh, dead faith. Because uh, faith uh, is the, it's called the form of charity. Now, when we think about the form of something, the form of something is what's going to make it alive. Uh, so uh, in, in the human uh, body-soul composition, the body is matter and then the soul is form. When the soul leaves the body, the person is dead. When the soul comes into the body, the person is alive. It's that vivifying uh, aspect. So in a, in a similar way, uh, in, in uh, faith, uh, the form of faith is charity. And I don't know why I can't find this right now. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's under uh, Fides Formata. I'll just check the Latin. There you go. So the virtue itself of faith. Ah, it calls it lifeless. That's ah, so not dead. So yeah, this is going to really help with uh, interpreting James because he doesn't, well, so we can, we can technically call the, the inward virtue of charity faith um, by some sort of uh, not exactly um, so not more, more of an analogous and improper uh, way of speaking, but a, a, a way of speaking, which is appropriated to listeners. Because if you're going to, if you're going to talk about um, the, the virtue of love when it comes to loving somebody else. You're not going to make some sort of uh, philosophical discourse about, no, this internal virtue of willing the good of the other person. No, you're going to talk about uh, helping them out. You're going to talk about outward sort of things as something which is a little more earthy. Um, so, so yeah, he, but theologically speaking, uh, it's, it's the virtue of love, which vivifies faith, but in a common way of speaking, yeah, you can say, well, yeah, works. Uh, that is it's faith with works. It's faith which work, with works that justifies, but it really means the virtue of justice, which is a, a fetus formata or form faith. So um, a gloss on the words faith without works is dead adds by which it lives once more. Therefore, faith, which was lifeless and without form hitherto becomes formed and living. I answer that there have been various opinions on this question and uh, we're we must therefore hold differently that living and lifeless faith are one in the same habit. The reason that a habit is differentiated by that which directly pertains to that habit. Now, since faith is a perfection of the intellect, which pertains directly to faith, which uh, pertains to the intellect. Again, what pertains to the will does not pertain directly to faith, so as to uh, be able to differentiate the habit of faith. But the distinction of living from 
lifeless faith is in respect to something pertaining to the will, i.e. charity, not in respect to something pertaining to the intellect. Therefore, living in lifeless faith are not distinct habits. <clears throat> so yeah, the, di the difference between a living in a dead faith can be described as being from works. Uh, James uses that language. But if we're going to be really intense theologically, uh, then we're saying, well, yeah, technically uh, it's not outward works, but it's the, uh, the virtue of faith. I mean, the virtue of uh, formed faith. Okay, so would you be able to explain how to engage in Eucharistic adoration without uh, giving improper honor to the outward elements? Um, not exactly understanding uh, the question. Did St. Bonaventure really call St. Thomas the father of heresies? Charles Columbe has said something like this, but what really happened? Real. Real, not fake at all. Real. No, I've, I've never heard that. St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas were very good friends. Uh, they were very, very good friends. And they're always presented uh, together. Now, I could see that as being... Um, so, after the death of St. Thomas, there were a few uh, famous local condemnations of St. Thomas... Uh, from some of his theological enemies. Famously, uh, St. Albert the Great went to defend his former student uh, from these charges. So I could see that coming down as a as a myth that St. Bonaventure said it to try to uh, prop up the anti-Thomists. So, father of heresies, um, Aquinas. Let me see. Oh, and I'll add Bonaventure too. I've never heard a source of this. Okay. Yeah, I don't see anything from this. Okay, I tried. Tried my hardest. Okay, what do you think of Prumer's Moral Theology Manual? I'm I'm a good fan of it. Uh, I know some people uh, have an issue. I'm trying to remember exactly what they have an issue on. I think it uh, particularly has to do with marital ethics uh, when it comes to um, marital relations, uh, specifically on uh, the laicity of certain uh, acts. Now, uh, I th I've read that section from Prumer. And I think with, if you read the whole uh, section, it makes a lot more sense what he's trying to say. And it's not what uh, what other people try to pretend like he's saying. Uh, I, I definitely uh, do have some critiques of the tradition of the moral theology manuals. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with uh, their outline or anything like that. It more so has to do with the temptation that always occurs uh, from speaking about the virtues in the life of virtue to uh, merely speaking about casuistry. Now, casuistry in itself is a good thing, and it has to be taught. So, yeah, those sections of the moral manuals need to be taught, and I don't see anything wrong with them. But uh, there definitely is some lack when it comes to an emphasis on the on the moral habits for building virtue 
so yeah, th those those are my thoughts when it comes to uh, the moral uh, theology uh, manualist tradition in in, uh, in general. Uh, Father Gary Goulagrange has some comments on them. Uh, I was talking to uh, Dr. Minard, and he sent me a few. Let me see if I can find them, actually. It was in an email he sent to me. Let me go all the way up. So, oh, here it is. It's from De uh, Revelazione. Uh, some modern manuals of moral theology contain almost nothing other than casuistic theology, and in them, moral theology appears like a science of grave and minor sins to be avoided rather than a science concerning virtues to be perfected. Likewise, many modern treatises of ascetical theology and mystical theology do not proceed fully enough from rightful uh, foundation of moral theology concerning the nature and progress of the infused virtues and the, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thus, they come to be constructed in too empirical a fashion and are lacking in doctrinal value. Ultimately, these defects lead to the dimension of the notion of the eminent unity of sacred theology. And uh, there's also a similar statement at the beginning of his commentary on uh, Beatitude, which is really good commentary. Okay, so would the adoration be directed to the accidents, even though Christ is illocally present, or is the sacrament treated like a sign or icon directing our honor to the whole Christ? Okay, that's a good question. So when it comes to uh, precisely um, Eucharistic theology on this question, so we describe Christ as being really present under, and that's a, that's a very important um way of speaking under the species, the outward uh, invisible uh, called the sensible species of bread and wine. So in, in directing uh, our adoration towards those species, we're really directing um, principally uh, what is under uh, those species. So if for some reason you were to uh, intellectually abstract the species of bread and wine uh, from uh, what is under the species that is the really present Lord, then I guess you could have uh, some sort of danger of idolatry. But that would be the same as like some comments which are made by St. Thomas Aquinas that people cry about. Oh, my, actually, he's being uh, he's being the story in here. He's not if you uh, if you actually read what he's saying. But he he says that if you somehow mentally abstract the humanity of our Lord as a nature from the hypostasis of the Son then technically speaking, then uh, you can't give uh, Latria to that abstracted uh, nature. But really, when we're, when we're speaking about concrete uh, worship, it's something which is not abstract, but it's concrete right in front of you. Uh, so you're, you're not going to do that. You're going to direct it towards the, the hypostasis, which is a present under the species of the, the nature of Christ. So, yeah. Okay, good question. Um, do you think Peter Lombard's sentences is worth studying today? Oh man, you're. This is this is a difficult question because. Um, how often do I actually uh, refer to Lombard sentences, or how often do I? I, I just actually sold my my four volume um, version of it because I have digital copies of it because I don't I don't reference to it too often. 
uh, when I do reference to it, it is because I'm reading a commentary on it by either St. Thomas or uh, St. Bonaventure or uh, some of Scotus's Ordinatio. So yeah, I, I use it as a reference work. It it was amazing for its time. The don't don't get me wrong in saying that it was truly amazing for its time. But Saint uh, Saint Thomas's theological summa just blew it out of the water when it comes to a a sort of quality um, textbook of theology. Uh, Peter Lombard he definitely has some deficiencies when it comes to. Uh, speaking about moral theology, it's almost entirely um, absent from the from his uh, sentences. It's only referenced, if I'm remembering correctly, in a section on Christology when he's speaking about Christ. He does make some wrong judgments uh, here and there. Uh, so, yeah, the, the for example, equating uh, charity with sanctifying grace. So his divisions are off. He makes some wrong judgments. Um, the, the, the ordering is a bit awkward. Um, uh, he doesn't follow. Um, I, I think just what was, what was amazing for theology, really what set apart everything after, uh, Lombard sentences, when you get of all of like the Summa Hellensis, uh, obviously St. Thomas's Summa Theologiae, um, Henry, I even bring up like Henry of Ghent's, uh, Summa, um, Alex, uh, I already mentioned Alexander Fales. Who else am I trying to think of? There's there's another really good uh, sumo from the area, but the age of the sume. Uh, what what really um, set apart um, that era was the rediscovery of posterior analytics. Posterior analytics is a work of Aristotle that talks about um, how we define terms, how we make judgments how we um, how we prove certain things, really that that leap in in the way in which uh, the medievals thought about logic and thought about the ordering of various sciences. It it, it is what made the difference between um, the sentences and uh, what was only written a few hundred years later in St. Thomas's Summa. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think and it's even present in the fact that there how the commentaries were done on uh, Lombard sentences is that Lombard sentences was what was almost immediately changed in format when it came to the way in which people commented on it, it wasn't the sort of exposition of text format that you get in the commentaries on scripture or the commentaries on Aristotle's works it was instantly changed into um, a, a sort of disputed questions format because it is better when it comes to uh, defining and explaining uh, certain aspects of theology. So, yeah, those are my thoughts on Lombard sentences. I wouldn't recommend anybody, uh, unless you have some sort of historical interest, or if you are really deep into theology, to just read through Lombard sentences. It's quite dry reading, actually. And it can be a bit confusing in some places. You make some wrong judgments in other places. So, yeah, um, th those are my thoughts on, on Lombard. But it is surprising uh, that he was never canonized, never declared a doctor of the church. And I think that shows that Lombard was more of a transitional figure than anything. Hope I wasn't too harsh on Lombard. I don't see any more questions. I will give it a minute or two, and then I will I will go. Did I say did I say Pope Saint John Paul the Sixth? I meant Pope. Pope St. Paul VI. Man. Oh, man. $20 super chat. Thank you, King.
Thanks for the answer. I recommend all online Catholics to use session chat for the inevitable band waves that will be coming. God bless and congrats. What is session chat? Session chat, let me. Um, private messaging, offering privacy, anonymity, and security, end-to-end encryption, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's a, a big part of why I started the Discord. And obviously, Discord doesn't have the same security um, as as um, Session probably has or other other options. But I, I, knew event, I know eventually this can't last forever. I know eventually I'm probably going to get banned from YouTube, Twitter, and everything like that. So it, I, I need some sort of like platform to kind of uh, build up everything again. So in the future, it could be uh, everything could look a lot different. It could be um, me uh, doing Discord voice chat, uh, stuff like that. Have I read Bishop William Forbes' uh, moderate, uh, modest considerations? Uh, he is an Irish bishop who responds to Bellarmine comparing articles of faith for both Protestants and Catholics. I've actually not, I've, but I've. If you guys want a, and sorry, sorry, Jeremy Bowers, I promise I'll get back to your question. But if you want, actually not. Okay, don't. You know, I, I will recommend this because I, I figure most of you will not read it. And most of you, I trust, will ask your spiritual fathers before you read any sort of heretical works. Uh, most of you, I do not recommend you ever read this. But uh, when it comes to uh, reformed responses to Catholicism, there is a section on here. Let me find it. I actually uh, famously am one of the two Roman Catholics who is on Reformed Books Online. Uh, they they uh, shared one of my articles on the... Um, on divine simplicity. So yeah, uh, there is like all of these works um, against Bellarmine because everybody was writing against Bellarmine. Stopped like the whole English government for for two years. Yes, yeah, so let me look at Forbes. Oh, they don't even have listed Forbes. World. William Ames, William Sherlock, William Whitaker, William Whitaker, William Guild. Another one by William Whitaker. Yeah, look at that. Crazy. Yeah, and so. Oh, you missed the stream. Well, there's still 18 minutes. Uh, I gathered Father Herbert Jones' moral theology was problematic concerning the marital act. Is it true? Thank you and God bless. I, I again, uh, oh sorry, Jeremy. I promise I will get to your question on on the Trinity. But when it comes to uh, Jones' moral theology and really all of the other moral theologies of the era, when they speak about the marital act, uh, they are making Kazuis uh, judgments of Kazuistry because this is meant for confessors. Uh, to be able to help people in the confession. Actually, interestingly enough, in some moral manuals, and I've seen this happen multiple times, when, when it's translated into English, they don't translate the marital act section into English because they only want priests to read it, uh, which is which is an important, um, I think, an important note of how we should um, go about uh, these questions. 
Um, but yeah, uh, people misunderstand it because if you read the larger context of their statements about the marital act, they're like, okay, here's technically the the rankings of of everything when it comes to it. Here, here's technically what would be allowed when it comes to the thing itself. But when it when we consider uh, when we consider virtue, when we consider intention, and all these other questions, it's almost impossible for these things to be okay. Um, but theoretically abstracting the act from all of these other considerations, like, yeah, this is, this is how it's ranking. Um, so, so yeah, you, you need to read, you need to kind of imbibe the whole, the whole system before you're making, before people make individual judgments about certain sections. Okay. So how should we understand three persons in the Trinity to maintain that there is one being? Well, I think it comes down to a proper uh, understanding of what a person is. So uh, I have an article on this, uh, but person uh, is not, I'll tell you what it's not uh, first, because people misunderstand this. People, when we think uh, in our in our modern way of uh, going about things, when we think of person, we think of some sort of um, locus of intellectual activity. That that's That's usually how we go about it. We're thinking, okay, person, that means uh, you think you have a brain, uh, you can intellectually work, you can, uh, you have a will and everything, uh, that that must be a person. And while it's more or less, uh, I guess, kind of accurate when we're talking about um, people, uh, rational animals, uh, us and angels, it's not, that's not the real definition of person. It's a, what's called a nominal definition or outward sort of definition of what a person is. So when we're thinking about the real definition of what a person is, it is an individual, uh, really an individual subsistence of a rational nature. Uh, so when it comes to the, when it comes to three persons uh, in, in the Trinity, the rational nature is, uh, is singular. So there is one rational nature, which is shared in three subsistences. And these subsistences are subsisting relations, relations of origin and procession. There is real distinction between those subsistences, but there is only a uh, what's called a virtual distinction between the subsistence and the nature in which is subsisting. And uh, yeah, that that is that is how we're, we're going to have to we're going to have to think about it. And obviously, um, I have just given you all of the all of the terms, the sort of terms, so to speak. I gave you all of the all of the jargon and kind of the definitions of how we use that jargon. Now, if you want an analogy and you can everybody out there who hates uh, Trinitarian analogies, it is a firm patristic and scholastic practice with uh, with a lot of history behind it. So you can see then cope and go back to your Lutheran answers uh, video, uh, Lutheran uh, Lutheran satire video. But when it comes to uh, a, a good way of thinking about it. So the way that I always used to explain it to students, and I will give you the proper negation so you don't fall into heresy from this, is let's say you have like a pool of water up here and the, you have the waterfall, which is flowing out of the pool of water. And then you have another pool of water down here. When it comes to uh, the there's a certain procession of water from the top to the waterfall. And there's a certain procession of that water from the top through the waterfall to the bottom pool. And now thinking about this in in, uh, in terms of the Trinity, of the top, you have obviously the Father, who is the monarch and head of the Trinity. And then you have the, the Son, which is generated by way of intellection. 
and then from the father through the son by way of volition or the way of the will or the way of love you have proceeding uh the the holy spirit and you have that one uh water or being substance essence that is shared uh between the, the three persons but it subsists um it, it subsists in uh, different relations. So the relation of top pool, the relation of waterfall, the relation of bottom pool. Now, the negation that you're going to make and the difficulty that comes in is that, and uh, the way that you're not supposed to think about this, is when you have the top pool, the waterfall, and the bottom pool, you have three different uh, quantities of water. When it comes to the Trinity, the entirety of the, the essence is communicated from the Father to the Son, and then from the Father through the Son to the Spirit. And it's entirely shared, and there's an entire interpenetration of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity within, within one another. So, um, yeah, that, that's those, those are the negations you're going to have to make when you come to thinking about uh, that analogy. But that analogy is good enough as a working analogy of how to think of it. So, thank you. Uh, that gave me a few minutes to talk about uh, one of my favorite, my favorite topics. Okay, so I've been reading Father Hunter's Outline of Dogmatic Theology, and it's been pretty good so far. His, his is a wonderful one. I, I, really, I do really love. Um, let, let me try to pull it up real quick. So if you go to my website, and you can either go to shop, under theology, but if you want the master list, then I have this uh, the recommended list reading list of manuals in philosophy and theology. If you go down to the theology manuals, right here is going to be Father Sylvester Joseph Hunter, uh, his outlines of dogmatic theology. I've typeset them all, so they're not crappy scanned versions or anything like that. Wonderful sort of beginner uh, and uh, intermediate uh, sort of sort of way of going about things. It's a really good it. If you're kind of like, yeah, I don't want the super beginner one, which is Father Copin's his systematic study of the Catholic religion, which is largely based on Father Hunter's outlines of dogmatic theology, because this is really meant for like high school student kind of like 300 page boom overview. It has a lot less jargon. It brings up a lot less of the distinctions. But if you think like, yeah, I'm ready for a three volume work, it's more prose. It's not too complicated. It gives good amounts of patristic and biblical support than <clears throat> Father Sylvester Joseph Hunter. I think uh, I have it for like $20 a volume. Actually, you know, now that I think of it, if, if any of you are interested, I have uh, an extra copy that I am looking on selling. So here it is right here. Uh, volume one, two, three. Um, I will. So if anybody's interested, uh, I guess if you're interested right now, uh, I'll sell it for uh, 50 bucks. Um, uh, yeah, that's what I'm selling it for. Originally, it's going to be like 65 or something around there. So if you uh, DM me, um, then uh, we can get that set up. Or if uh, you want to claim it right now in, uh, if you want to claim it right now in the chat. So does Father Gary Lagrange have his own outline of theology book? Something similar, uh, although not not really. Uh, for for Father Gary Lagrange, uh, it was it was common 
uh, it is really uh, a bit upsetting that he didn't do this. But it was common back then to have um, your Prelectiones Theologiae and then your uh, Cursus Theologiae. So the Prelectiones Theologiae, uh, that, that is uh, your, your kind of outlines. So it'd be like your four, three, four volume uh, theology. And then you have your uh, Cursus Theologiae, uh, your course of theology, which would usually be around somewhere between 10 and 12 volumes. Uh, Father Perone has a very famous uh, set of these two. You have your shortened one, which is um, kind of more of like an outline thing where you're not uh, providing as much uh, patristic and biblical and scholastic support. You're not listing as much of other opinions, but you're kind of just giving like, okay, here's my takes on this. Whereas in the Cursus Theologiae, the longer one, you're giving you're giving all of the extra, giving all the extra details. So it's really upsetting that uh, that wasn't something which was done by uh, by Father Lagrange. But his reality, uh, his synthesis of Thomistic thought, is the closest thing that you get to it. Really, reality. Uh, it's a volume that I recommend for people who have a background in theology and they're wanting to learn about Thomistic distinctives. That's what it's perfect for. So. So, uh, and this is probably the last one I'll answer unless somebody wants to drop a super chat or something like that, then I will suffer the, I have a call scheduled for three that I, uh, that I need to, uh, go into. So <clears throat> how would you reply, respond to the argument from divine hiddenness? And, oh, I forgot. I have this shared the whole time. That's a good question. Uh, so the, the question that I ask most people is how else would God do it? How else would God do it? Because let's say what they want is they want a thundering voice from the cloud and they want a sort of a floating person to come down and say, I am God. Worship me. Um, here's here's what I say you should do. I'm I'm uh, God and I'm going to come every week and tell you to do the same thing for the rest of history. And I'm going to pop up and say hi. Now. When it comes to the various explanations of this, it could be um, some sort of psychological, um, some sort of psychological uh, deception. It could be uh, aliens. I'm, I'm sure if God came down like that and did that big old show in the sky sort of thing, there would still be billions of people. Well, uh, probably not billions. There would probably be significantly less atheists, but still, there would still be a uh, Many, 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 many people who would still deny the existence of God. They'd be like, oh, I don't believe in that made up nonsense. That's just uh, that's just an alien coming down or government projection or, or whatever it may be. So that wouldn't. So when it comes to the, the problem of divine hiddenness, we have to ask ourselves, what other way would it be done when it comes to proving the existence of God? Really, if you think about it, when it comes to the classical, the classical proofs for the existence of God, um, it is it is it has more surety to it than if God came down in, in his big sort of cloud thing and told everybody, I'm God, listen to me and uh, worship Jesus Christ and become a Catholic. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you would have the, the Twitter Protestants who would say that actually it was a demon. Like, like, look at Fatima. Fatima is something which was completely obvious. And somebody asked a question about Fatima above that I forgot to forgot to answer. Uh, sorry about that. Let me. Yeah, yeah. When there's a miracle like Fatima, how do we know that it's from demons or God? Could demons do what happened to Fatima? Is there a limit to their power? Yeah. So, so when it comes to when it comes to something like Fatima, 
something completely obvious that it's that is miraculous. People would say, yeah, it's from demons. If you had God come down in a cloud and say, uh, become Catholic, you would have a bunch of Protestants still say, well, actually, that's demons. Uh, that's not actually God. So so really, the, the only way has, has to be from this sort of a priori um, uh, and, and analytic way of reasoning from premise to conclusion and from first principles to conclusion. The, the only way that it, that it could be done with the degree of certainty that we have. Now, when it comes to your question specifically about Fatima, how do we know if it's uh, from demons or God? Uh, really, the, the criteria for that has to do with asking the question of uh, whether that is really increasing the spread of true faith, true devotion, and true love, or whether it's some sort of deceptive way. Because if there was a miracle among, amongst Protestants, which there really isn't, uh, we would say, like, yeah, it's clearly from demons. Or... Um, or if it's something uh, more evangelistic and bringing, if, if it's something saying, okay, become Protestant, deny the Catholic faith, blah, blah, blah. We would say, yeah, that's clear from demons. So I, I get the intuition. Uh, but really the question is we need to ask ourselves about genuine miracles is, uh, is the doctrinal and uh, devotional um, uh, uh, consistency of it with, with what we already know. Okay. Oh my, sorry. I, I really have to go. I really have to get this call in three minutes. Okay. Thank you. And I will talk to you guys later. Goodbye. And thank you for all the, all the super chats and stuff. And remember to click that subscribe button. Almost. I am about a hundred away from 2000. So.